ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد So in the last lesson, we were discussing the chapter regarding the beginning of the revelation. And we mentioned in that chapter, the author had said, فَلَمَّا بَلَغَ أَرْبَعِينَ سَنَةً اَخْتَصَّهُ اللَّهُ بِكَرَامَتِهِ وَبْتَعَثَهُ بِرِسَالَتِهِ That when the Prophet ﷺ had reached the age of 40, that is when Allah ennobled him with that divine revelation ennobled him with that prophethood atahu jibril alayhi salam wa huwa bighari hira jabal bi makkah that was the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was in the cave of hira that is a mountain in makkah he was in that cave within it that Jibreel alayhi salam came to him فَأَقَامَ بِمَكَّةَ ثَلَافَ عَشَرَةَ سَنَةَ And so the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam remained in Mecca for 13 years وَقِيلَ خَمْسَ عَشَرَةَ سَنَةَ And it has been said Fifteen years. وقيل عشرة. It has also been said it was ten years. والصحيح الأول. And what is correct from these opinions and statements is that it was the first of those thirteen years. That after the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was given the prophethood, he remained in Mecca for 13 years. Then after that is when the hijrah occurred, which is what we're going to discuss shortly today. So whilst he was in Mecca, we mentioned that they used to pray, but that they used to pray in what direction? To... Baytul Maqdis, towards the direction of Jerusalem. But we also mention that the Prophet ﷺ, when he used to pray to Baytul Maqdis, uh, when he used to pray in that direction, that he did not used to put the Kaaba behind him. Rather, he used to stand how and where. Not the black stone and Maqami Ibrahim, but the black stone and the Yemeni corner. Between the black stone and the Yemeni corner, he would stand behind that section, that side of the Kaaba, because then facing forwards would be towards Jerusalem. So in that way, he was not turning his back to the Kaaba in prayer. He was facing towards Jerusalem, but also 
with the Kaaba in front of him. So he did that, and even after the Hijrah, the direction of prayer was still towards Bayt al-Maqdis. And so for a period of approximately 17 or maybe 16 months after the Hijrah, the direction of prayer was still that old direction of prayer. Then after that, we know that the revelation came. فَوَلِّ وَجْهَكَ شَطَرَ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ The revelation came in Surah Al-Baqarah regarding changing the direction of where you face in the prayer. And so the direction was changed towards the Kaaba, towards facing the Kaaba. And that is when that direction changed. We also know that famous story we've mentioned before, when the change of direction occurred, it is said that the Prophet ﷺ sent a man to go and inform the people in Masjid Quba that the Prophet Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam sent someone to go and tell the people of Quba that the direction has changed. So when this man got to Masjid Quba, it was either the time of Zuhr or the time of Asr. And they were actually praying. In Masjid Quba, they were praying either Zuhr or Asr. It was one of those times when the man arrived. Obviously, they were still praying Towards Bayt al-Maqdis, the old direction. When he got there, their jama'ah had started, and obviously their jama'ah had started in the old direction yet. So when he got there, he made the announcement. So in the prayer, they heard this man coming and making the announcement. The ayah has been revealed, the direction of the Kaaba has changed. And so in the prayer, they heard that, the imam heard that. In the prayer, they... Changed direction and carried on praying towards the direction of the Kaaba. That was, as scholars mentioned in Masjid Quba, people famously say that this event occurred in Masjid Al Qiblatain. In Medina, there is a mosque known as the Mosque of the Two Qiblas. People say that's where this story happened. And that's why they call it the mosque of the two Qiblas. Because they were praying in the old direction first and then they changed to the new direction. Masjid Al-Qiblatain. It's just maybe a mile or two from the Haram. So people say it was in that mosque. However, many of the scholars have mentioned it is more likely that it was in Masjid Quba where this particular event occurred. Also we know when the direction of the Qibla changed, some of the companions came to the Prophet wasallam and asked him what? They were worried and concerned about something. What were they worried and concerned about when the direction of the Qibla changed? The Not the prayers that they had prayed, but... 
Others, other companions who had died already before the change of direction occurred, that means those companions never ever got to pray towards the Kaaba. All of their prayers were in the old direction. So the others came to the Prophet ﷺ asking him what's going to happen about their prayers. Do they still get the reward or is that going to be all nullified now then? So then the ayah was revealed. Which ayah? وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ إِيمَانَكُمْ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not uh, nullify or waste or uh, erode away the reward from your iman. Your iman being your prayers in that old direction. Meaning they will get their reward for their prayers that they prayed in that direction. They died before the new revelation came. So they will not lose their reward of those prayers. They will have the reward of that prayers, those prayers that they prayed in the old direction and died and never got to pray in the new direction because they died before the revelation came. So that was regarding that, uh, regarding the prayer and the time spent in Mecca and the direction of the Qibla changing. Now then after that, the next chapter is regarding the Hijrah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the hijrah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. What does the word hijrah mean? Migration. Migration in English, but Islamically, what does hijrah mean? Um, moving for the sake of Allah. Moving for the sake of Allah. So you move from Beeston to another part of Leeds. You've done hijrah. You did it for the sake of Allah. So you move to a country of Islam. Where do you move from? So Islamically speaking, Hijrah is al-intiqal min baladil kufr ila baladil Islam. To move from the land of kufr to the land of Islam for the sake of Allah, for your religion. That's Hijrah. You can't say I'm making Hijrah in the land of kufr. Hijrah is when you move to the land of Islam to protect your religion and to preserve your religion. So that is hijrah and that is what happened because they were in Mecca at the time and Mecca at the time of course was in the control of the mushrikeen. It was in the control of the mushrikeen and it was in control of kuffar, therefore. They are kuffar, the mushrikeen. And so they left that place and they went to Medina. And that is what we're going to have a look at here now, this story of the hijrah. <coughs> so the author, he mentions, ثُمَّ هَاجَرَ إِلَى الْمَدِينَةِ وَمَعَهُ أَبُو بَكْرَ الصِّدِّيقَ رضي الله عنه ومولى أبي بكر عامر بن فهيرة that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم then migrated to Medina with Abu Bakr الصديق رضي الله عنه and the Mawla of Abu Bakr what is a Mawla? a freed slave 
somebody who used to be a slave, but then he was freed. So, there used to be a slave, but he was then freed. And that person, Amir ibn Fuhairah, also was with them. Amr ibn Fuhairah, the freed slave of Abu Bakr, was also with them. وَدَلِيلُهُمْ And they had a guide with them. A guide to show them the path and to take them to Medina. And his name was Abdullah ibn al-Urayqit. Abdullah ibn al-Urayqit al-Layfi. And he was a disbeliever. Abdullah ibn al-Urayqit al-Layfi was not a Muslim. Their guide that they took with them to show them the path, to show them the route. He was not a Muslim. وَلَمْ يُعْرَفْ لَهُ إِسْلَامٌ And it's not mentioned in the books of history that he actually ever became a Muslim. So, he was not a Muslim, Abdullah ibn al-Urayqat al-Layfi. And it's not known if he accepted Islam afterwards or not. That's not something recorded in history. But he was the man who was the guide that took them. So, and once the Prophet arrived in Medina, of course, we know that he stayed there for 10 years until he passed away. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So after the Prophet had spent those 13 years in Mecca, Allah then permitted this migration to occur. Why was there a need for this migration to occur in the first place? Because the Mushrikun had control of Mecca and they were persecuting the Muslims. They were doing harm to the Muslims, punishing the Muslims, being severe upon the Muslims. And in fact, before this hijrah was made, there was already one hijrah that was made before this. What was the first hijrah? This is known as the second hijrah. What was the first hijrah that some of the Muslims already made before this? To Abyssinia, to Habasha. The first hijrah was already made to Habasha under the control at that time of Al-Najashi. Al-Najashi rahimahullah. And of course his name was not actually Al-Najashi. Al-Najashi is just the name of the ruler of that area. Just like the rulers of Egypt were known as pharaohs. And the rulers of Rome are known as Caesars. All of these different titles you have for rulers of particular areas. And Najashi was the title of the rulers of that area. What was his actual name then? That's going to be the homework this week. What was the actual name of a Najashi? What has been said regarding the actual name of a Najashi? So some of the Muslims, they made that initial hijrah, or they made that initial move to Abyssinia, to Habasha. He was a Christian ruler. 
The people there were Christian. However, he was known to be a just ruler. He did not oppress anyone. And in fact, if you look at the more detailed books of Sirah, this of course we're going through is a summary. But if you go through some of the more detailed books of Sirah, then it mentions how the Muslims, they got there. And then they gave some da'wah to Najashi, meaning that they told him about the ayat of the Qur'an. He heard about Maryam in the Qur'an. He heard about Isa alayhi salam in the Qur'an. He heard all of these things from the Muslims in the Qur'an about Isa, about Maryam. And of course he was Christian. So when he heard all of these things and he saw all of these ayat about them, he was impressed. The mushrikun in Mecca, when they found out some of the Muslims have gone and made the migration to Abyssinia, they weren't happy. They weren't happy the Muslims have slipped away from them. So they sent some people out there. The mushrikun from Mecca, they sent some people out there to go and speak to Najashi, to convince Najashi to kick those Muslims out back into Mecca. So they went there and they took gifts for him and everything. But when they got there and Najashi had heard these ayat of the Qur'an, had heard about how the Qur'an speaks about Isa and about Maryam, and he refused what they said. And he didn't kick the Muslims out back to Mecca. So that was An-Najashi. And we know of course in the hadith it mentions when he died, what happened? But the Prophet was all the way in? Where was the Prophet at the time? And where was An-Najashi? So how did the Prophet find out that An-Najashi has died? It was a miracle. Because the, in the hadith it says, the day An-Najashi died, the Prophet ﷺ prayed the janazah upon him. How in those days, from Abyssinia to the Arabian Peninsula, how are you going to get that news across? It's not like these days. It was revelation. It was Jibreel salam came and informed him. It was divine revelation to inform the Prophet salam that an Najashi has died on the same day. Otherwise, even in those days on horseback, everything on the same day, it's not going to happen. So it was by revelation that the Prophet salam found out an Najashi has passed away. And of course, an Najashi over there was surrounded by which religion? Christians. So... The janazah was not done upon him there. So the Prophet ﷺ gathered the companions, told them to come out, and they prayed the janazah upon An-Najashi in his absence. So as a side point, what is the fiqh ruling? I'm praying the janazah upon somebody absent. The body isn't there. If it's somebody prominent Muslim, is a prominent Muslim, then he can be prayed upon him, but over the on the Nas. So there are some different opinions of the scholars about this. You could say there are three or four main opinions. One main opinion about this issue is that it is absolutely allowed. Because 
clearly the Prophet ﷺ prayed Salatul Ghaib upon Najashi. Therefore it's allowed. You can pray Salatul Ghaib, the janaza, upon somebody in their absence, the body is absent. And what's the proof? The Prophet ﷺ did it for Najashi. Clear, simple. So that is the opinion of some scholars. Absolutely it's allowed, no problem. The second opinion is, it's absolutely not allowed to pray Salatul Ghaib. There's no such sunnah. But then how are they going to explain this? So it's weak. No, it's authentic. Okay. But they'll say it is an exception specific to the Prophet There are certain things we know are specific to the Prophet They'll say this is one of those things that is specific to the Prophet It's not a generalized sunnah that everybody can do. So it's not allowed. You cannot pray the janazah unless you have the body there. That's the second opinion. Third opinion is, it's allowed, but only in one circumstance. What is that circumstance? If somebody dies somewhere where there are no Muslims who perform the janazah upon them, like in Najashi. He died amongst the Christians. No janazah was done for him there. So a janazah needs to be done. So now you can do it even in his absence. So now if you hear about a Muslim dies in some land. And you know there are no other Muslims there. None of his family are Muslim. And you know he's died now. So you can pray the Salatul Ghaib upon that Muslim. Because you know no other Muslims have prayed any janazah upon him. There could be a situation for example you know about somebody who's become Muslim. In some country somewhere, all of his family are kuffar, all of his village are kuffar, he's the first person who's become Muslim there. You just, in the, the days, nowadays, with everything, connectivity, media, social media, easy contact with people. You get in contact with somebody, everybody's kafir there, his whole village is kafir there, and then he dies suddenly. You know. There's no janazah going to be done upon him. His family is just going to bury him. Maybe he told you he hasn't even told his family he's Muslim yet. So now you know this person. He had taken the shahada, everything, but he's died amongst the kuffar. Nobody's going to do janazah upon him. So you can now do salatul ghaib. Because he is a Muslim. He has died somewhere where no janazah has been done upon him. So a janazah needs to be done. The fourth opinion is you can do salatul ghaib Let's summarize the first three actually to start with. The first opinion was, it's open. In any circumstance, you can do Salatul Ghaib because the Prophet did it to Najashi. Second opinion, in any circumstance, it is not allowed. That was specific to the Prophet Third one, it's allowed but only in one circumstance. When a person has died, a Muslim has died and... But no janazah was done upon him there, so now you can do it salatul ghaib. Fourth opinion is, you can do the salatul ghaib upon a person even if they've already had a janazah done, if that person was a person of position in Islam. You can do a salatul ghaib upon a Muslim even if they've had the janazah done where they were actually buried and died, if that person was a person of status in Islam, for example, he was a, a like a prominent Muslim ruler, 
and he was ruling upon his country and he was, you know, goodness, etc. For somebody of status like that who did a lot for Islam. So you could pray the janazah upon his absence, even though he's going to get the janazah done in his country where he died. But because of his status in Islam and what he did for Islam and his position in Islam, you can do it. Another obvious example is scholars. When great scholars die, like when a Shaykh al died, a Shaykh bin Baz died, obviously they had the janazah done where they died and they were buried, but all over the place, everywhere, people were doing the Salatul Ghaib too, because of who they were, a Shaykh al a Shaykh bin Baz, and what they did for Islam and their station in Islam. So that is an opinion, that is the fourth opinion, and it is an opinion that is held by several scholars, it is a widespread opinion that you can do Salat al-Ghaib upon a person even if they've had it done if they are a person of status who has some status in Islam and position in Islam and they've done things for Islam that it can be done, so there are different opinions on that, but that was a side point regarding Najashi and the first Hijrah that they made over there the second Hijrah the second hijrah, this major hijrah, is what we're talking about now. <coughs> when after 13 years in Mecca, after the persecution of the kuffar, Allah permitted the Prophet ﷺ to make the hijrah to leave Mecca and to go to Medina. This was a major event in the history of Islam. <coughs> this move of the final prophet from Mecca to Medina is one of the major events and incidents in the history of Islam. And of course we know in Medina it was who that accepted the Prophet ﷺ and aided him and received him, the Ansar. The Ansar. And in fact, it wasn't how some people might think that the Prophet got to Medina and then they all just accepted Islam and they helped him. Even before he went to Medina, he had contact with the Ansar. And they had already agreed to receive the Prophet ﷺ and to help him. Because it's mentioned in the hadith that the Prophet ﷺ would say at the time of Hajj when everybody was there and all the different tribes were there, أَلَا رَجُلٌ يَحْمِلُنِي إِلَىٰ قَوْمِهِ فَإِنَّ قُرَيْشًا قَدْ مَنَعُونِي أَنْ أُبَلِّغَ كَلَامَ رَبِّي Is there not a man who will take me to his people? For indeed, Quraysh have prevented me from disseminating and conveying my Lord's speech. And so, when he used to say this, the Ansar of Medina, they accepted that call of the Prophet And they accepted and wanted the Prophet ﷺ to come to them in Medina. So they made a, a, an agreement, a covenant with him, that they would protect the Prophet ﷺ. They would protect him as they protect themselves and their own children. And they presented their wealth to him. And we know about the stories of when they went there, and then the Ansar, they split their wealth that they had with themselves and the Muhajirun. And the Prophet ﷺ made brothers between pairs of the Ansar and the Muhajirun. And the wealth and the affairs were spread and split between them. So there was a great deal of brotherhood which occurred. So 
he informed his companions of the permission to leave. The Prophet ﷺ informed his companions that this hijrah was going to occur. So most of the companions went to Medina before the Prophet ﷺ himself. The Prophet ﷺ informed the Muslims about this plan now, and many of the companions went ahead and they left and went before the Prophet ﷺ himself left yet. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu sought permission to migrate. He asked the Prophet ﷺ permission to leave, but the Prophet ﷺ did not give him permission to go ahead. All of the other companions, many of them were going on ahead. They were leaving now. They were leaving and going to Medina. Prophet ﷺ not yet. Abu Bakr sought permission to head out to but the Prophet ﷺ did not give him permission. And it is mentioned that maybe the reason for that is that the Prophet ﷺ wanted to honor Abu Bakr by making Abu Bakr his traveling partner. He wanted to honor Abu Bakr in making him the traveling partner alongside him when he was to leave and to make that hijrah. So they would migrate together. Himself, the Prophet, وسلم, and Abu Bakr, as Siddiq, radiallahu anhu, as his companion. And the ayah in the Quran mentions, إِلَّا تَنْصُرُوهُ فَقَدْ نَصَرَهُ اللَّهِ إِذْ أَخْرَجَهُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا ثَانِيَ اثْنَيْنِ إِذْ هُمَا فِي الْغَارِ إِذْ يَقُولُ لِصَاحِبِهِ لَا تَحْزَنْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ مَعَنَا If you do not aid the Prophet, Allah has already aided him when those who disbelieved had driven him out of Mecca as one of two. When they were in the cave, as one of two, when they were in the cave. Who are the two in the cave? The Prophet and Abu Bakr. So this ayah is referring to Abu Bakr as-Siddiq. Two of them in the cave. And he said to his companion, i.e. the Prophet وسلم, said to his companion, Abu Bakr, the Siddiq radiallahu anhu, do not grieve, for indeed Allah is with us. So it was from Allah's aid for the Prophet وسلم, was to make Abu Bakr, as Siddiq radiallahu anhu, it was decreed that he would be his companion upon the migration. And the second aid of Allah for them was that Allah, in relation to being with his slaves, there are general categories, meaning Allah being in the aid of his servants is different types. You have Allah's aid for his servants at a general level, and then you have Allah's aid for His servants at a specific level. So here, that was the aid of Allah to them. The second aid was Allah being with them. And in relation to Allah being with His slaves, there are different categories. General, specific, and exclusive. Indeed, Allah is with us. This was an honor and virtue for Abu Bakr as Allah first described him as a companion for the Prophet. And then Allah clarified his exclusive manner of being with them. So this was a very particular and specific aid of Allah for the Prophet ﷺ and Abu Bakr as-Siddiq 
radiyallahu anhu. There is a famous story that is mentioned about when they were in the cave. And what is that famous story mentioned as to when they were in the cave? The spider's web story. That when they got to the cave, and obviously in pursuit were the... The mushrikun were in pursuit. They were coming after them. And so they were in the cave, and a spider apparently came and made a web across the face of the cave. So when the mushrikun came, they said they cannot be inside of the cave, because if they were in the cave, the spider web would have been broken to get in. So they didn't bother going in there and that's how they were saved. That narration though is weak. It is not an established narration. It is not a proven narration regarding the narration of the spider's web on the cave. Many of the scholars have said that is a weak narration. Even though it is so famously narrated all the time. So it is a weak narration that mentions that. There are other narrations there. It mentions that Abu Bakr said, if the mushrikun had just looked down into the cave, they would have seen our feet just there. That one the scholars mentioned, that it's authentic, that it was mentioned, they were stood just right there. And if the mushrikun had looked down, they would have seen the feet of Abu Bakr and the Prophet ﷺ right there, but they didn't. So, alongside them, like we said, there was Abdullah ibn, oh no, before that there was Amir ibn Fuhaira, who was the freed slave of Abu Bakr. He was with them on this journey. And then on top of that, there was the man guiding them, Abdullah ibn al-Uraiqat al-Layfi, who was not a believer. <coughs> and... It is not specifically noted in history if this man Abdullah ibn al-Uraiqat al-Layfi became a Muslim afterwards or not. Sheikh Muhammad al-Aqil, he said, I attempted to research the history of this man, Abdullah ibn al-Uraiqat al-Layfi, to see if he did ever become a Muslim or not. And I found that some historians mentioned him becoming a Muslim after this journey. But I did not find anything firm, properly authentic and established regarding it. There are some reports that he became a Muslim afterwards, but there is nothing solid indicating that he became a Muslim afterwards. So Allah knows best. But during the journey... When the journey happened, he definitely wasn't a Muslim at that time. When he was their guide, he wasn't a Muslim at that time. He was simply hired to show them the route. He was somebody who knew the route and the mountain passes. And so he was hired to show them uh, the pathway. He was simply a guide to show them the pathway. He was hired for that purpose. And so the scholars, they say, this shows the fiqh ruling that it is permissible to hire a kafir for some business or trade purposes. You need to hire a kafir to come and do the electrics in your house. It's allowed. Hire a kafir to come and fix your boiler. It's allowed. Nothing wrong with doing that type of business. 
So hiring a disbeliever and participating with them in trade, that's permissible. That isn't uh, anything wrong with that, uh, to uh, do business with a non-Muslim or to do some trade with a non-Muslim, to hire a non-Muslim in some business, that's allowed. Here the Prophet ﷺ hired a non-Muslim to be their guide and to show them the way to do the hijrah. And so when the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Medina, the Ansar, they were overjoyed. And Allah had honored the city of Medina with the arrival of the Prophet ﷺ. And him residing in Medina was an honor for Medina. That is an honor for the city of Medina and the spread of the religion from there. And from the virtue and blessings of this migration is that the companions, sallam, made the Islamic calendar based upon this event of the Hijrah. So now we are in the year 1440 Hijri, meaning that the Hijra occurred 1440 years ago. 1440 years ago is when the Hijra occurred. That is the calendar Islamically how it begins. From the Hijra of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that is an honor also. It shows the honorable nature of this act and the Prophet coming to Medina that the calendar was even made upon that by the companions thereafter. And when the companions, and this is mentioned by some of the scholars like Sheikh Ali Thaymeen and others, when the companions, radiallahu anhum, established the, the Islamic uh, uh, state, at that time in Medina and the spread of Islam when it occurred during the days of Umar radiallahu anhu in particular when Islam spread amongst the different lands they needed to mark the dates and before that the dates were only moon sightings they knew about the months and the moon sightings but they didn't have any dates or a calendar as such so they had four different opinions as to how to start a calendar they had four different opinions how to start a calendar. Some of them said we should just start it from the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. Start the calendar from the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. Some of them said we should start it from the beginning of the revelation. When the revelation began from there, let's start the calendar. That's where it begins from the first year, from the year of the revelation. Others, they said, it should begin from when the Prophet ﷺ died. Because remember, they were having this discussion now at the time of Umar ibn Khattab after. So they said, we should begin maybe at the time of when the Prophet ﷺ died. Start the years from there. And one opinion was, we should start it from when the Hijrah occurred. And that is the opinion which was settled upon. And so the Islamic calendar began upon that, upon the uh, hijrah of the Prophet <coughs> And there is only one country in the world 
that uses the Hijri calendar as a basis, and that's Saudi Arabia. They use the Islamic calendar up until this day. Everything is upon the Islamic calendar. The university timetables, everything we used to have, everything Islamic calendar. Then next to it in brackets, they might put that is equivalent to such and such a date on the, the Gregorian calendar. But the Islamic calendar is used. Everything in all their different dealings and different things and what you see in business, the Islamic calendar is there. Um, Islamic rulings, Islamic rulings are all based upon the lunar calendar, which is the Islamic calendar, the lunar calendar. Hajj, fasting, everything is based upon the lunar calendar, the moon sightings. Uh, and so that is exactly what is used by Saudi Arabia, for example, these days. Then, it is from the wisdom of the companions that they preferred the hijrah as their choice, rather than the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. They feared that if they chose the birth of the Prophet ﷺ, the people would end up taking it as a holiday and exaggerating it, just like the Christians have done with the birth of Isa salam. So they feared this may occur. So it is from the wisdom of the companions, they didn't choose the birthday or the death day of the Prophet ﷺ. Because people would end up taking those as holidays and taking those as days of celebration or New Year's Day, the day of the Prophet's birth or the day of the Prophet's death, all those kinds of things. So they avoided that and that was from their wisdom to leave that out and to use the hijrah of the Prophet ﷺ as the day instead. And also at the end we can mention, even after the Prophet ﷺ entered Medina, there were of course those people who still had great enmity towards him from the Jews and the hypocrites. In Medina, there were Jews, there were hypocrites, they had great enmity towards him. But he was patient and merciful with them. He would visit them and give them food, eat their food, sit with them, and they would visit him, the men, the women, and the children. And sometimes the Jews would ask him questions. There are narrations in Bukhari and otherwise. How the Jews would ask him questions. Uh, and sometimes the Jewish woman, women would come to him for judgment in a dispute they had with Muslim women. There are some narrations mentioned about how some Jews had some disputes with some Muslims. And they would say to the Muslim, the Jews would say to the Muslim, will go to your Prophet Muhammad to decide. Because they knew the Prophet ﷺ would not be unjust. They knew if it was their right against the Muslim, the Prophet Muhammad would give them their right. They knew that. So they would say to the Muslims, we'll go to the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ, your Prophet. We'll go to him to make the judgment. Because they knew he would never be unjust. If it was their right, he would give it to them. He wouldn't be unjust just because the other one is Muslim. That's what they used to say. And there is a narration about a munafiq who was once arguing with a Jew. The Jewish said to the munafiq, who is apparently a Muslim, the Jewish said to him, we'll go to the Prophet Muhammad We'll go to him to judge. The munafiq, being a munafiq, didn't want to go to the Prophet 
He wanted to go to some other munafiq or some other person. That shows you what the munafiqeen were like. And so uh, it's mentioned that they would go to him for rulings. And this is from even previously, like we said, he was known as Al-Ameen, the truthful one, the trustworthy one. And then, of course, we know in Medina there are all of the narrations about what the munafiqun tried to do. The munafiqun, how they attempted to disrupt the da'wah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We know about the narration regarding Masjid al-Dirar, how they planned to build a mosque. The munafiqun, in one of their plots, they decided to build a mosque in Medina, just on the outskirts of Medina next to Masjid Quba. They decided we can build a mosque, nobody will be suspicious about that, building a mosque. And then we can get together in the mosque on a regular basis and nobody will be suspicious about that. Because mosque, you get together, everybody gets together, you have prayers, you have classes. Nobody will ever get suspicious if we regularly get together in the mosque. Obviously, they were going to regularly get together in the mosque to make plots against the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims. So they decided that's an easy way to remove any suspicion. Build a mosque, get together in the mosque all the time, nobody will be suspicious about that. But if we get together in our houses, etc., that will cause suspicion if we're regularly doing that. So they built the mosque. And when they built the mosque, they decided just to make sure definitely no suspicion occurs. They invited the Prophet ﷺ to come and pray in it. But at the time, the Prophet ﷺ was out of Medina. So he sent a messenger back telling them, when I get back to Medina, I'll come. Inshallah, I'll come and pray. New mosque, Muslims have built it. Even though they were, of course, munafiqun. But on the way back, revelation came to the Prophet ﷺ. The ayah, لا تقوم فيه أبدا. Do not pray in that place ever. Do not stand within that place ever. Revelation came telling the Prophet ﷺ what was going on. So then the Prophet ﷺ sent some of the people, some of the Muslims ahead, to go and destroy that building down. Because that building was not a mosque. It wasn't a mosque, even though it was built as a mosque. Places are built upon their intentions. That was not a place built upon the intention of worship to Allah. So it wasn't a mosque, even though it looks like a mosque and everything what they built. Places are built upon their intentions. That place was built upon the intention of destroying Islam, not worshipping Allah. So it wasn't classed as a mosque. So they were told to go and burn it down, and they burnt it down. Then in the books of history they say that the people of Quba, the Muslims of Quba, used that location as their dumping ground, their rubbish tip. As a humiliation for the kuffar, they used to use that rubble where it got burnt down as their dump. They used to go throw their rubbish and everything there. So that is something regarding the munafiqun too. We'll round off on that for today and we'll move on to the next chapter inshallah ta'ala next week. Uh, next week inshallah ta'ala we'll move on to that next chapter. Um, if everybody is uh, able and if the whole is able are you is it possible to start at 7.15 for next week? Uh, uh, I think, in, is it two weeks? The times are changing anyway. So there might be some changes in time, but we'll announce them every week. So next week, let everybody know, text messages, whatever, 
Let them all know we'll start at 7.15 p.m. inshallah next week. So we'll round off on that for today.